0: Hi, I'm Aaron, and welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle Podcast. A podcast all about, well, you guessed it, hip hop. I will be interviewing artists and exploring the genre I love. My hope is that you will begin to love it as much as I do, if not more. Please like and subscribe, and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for any upcoming podcast news. Coming up on today's show, I caught up with Elder Sensei, a veteran of hip-hop who has had a career spanning over 25 years. He's also one part of the legendary group The Artifacts, alongside Tame One and DJ Chaos. This was such an interesting conversation as we spoke about the industry, hip-hop in the 90s, and even the time he met Biggie. But before I say too much, let's get into it. Well, with my man elder sensei he's been in the game since the 90s so he's a true veteran of hip hop um it's a real pleasure for me i always like speaking to veterans of hip hop because there is a lot of like story and a lot of history that comes back within your career um and i was just like listening to to the things that you have to say in terms of the wisdom and and kind of your experiences growing up so how did you find hip hop when you were young uh
1: i remember me and friends on the porch and we were uh just listening to music and we just happened to hear super rhymes and this was like all in the same day like a summer um that was like uh my first like curtis blow uh here in the breaks like that was the first record besides sugar hill gang where you these songs were long so you had to memorize them in a way where it was different because growing up it was just uh funk music and jazz and all the stuff that your parents listen to just wanted to sit there and learn everything that they were saying um like that was my first introduction into hip-hop like period this is before it wasn't no b-boying or nothing it was just hearing those couple of songs and i and i and that's not something i wanted to do right off that off the top i was just enjoying it for what it was
0: and so because in, when you were growing up, hip-hop wasn't as big as it is now. Mm-hmm. Like, hip-hop was an up-and-coming art form. So right. how did you and your parents listen to, like, jazz music? It's a big difference moving into the genre of hip-hop. How did they perceive the change in the music and how the break beats were starting to be made?
1: Well, uh, with, with Curtis Blow, uh, because he was an old dude, like, it, my parents got into it. You know, because it also because of the music, uh, you know, it sounded like disco. So we, this was like everybody at the same time encountering this, you know. But I think that it was more or less, it was something new, and something different. And like I said, I was listening to George Benson, uh, Earth, Wind, the fire Fire, the Commodores. You know, anything my parents were listening to, all of the things that we knew to be records in the in the future in hip hop. Was what we was listening to as kids as for as the samples and everything like that. So the biggest, you know, thing that we noticed was uh, like Sugar Hill game was ramming off of chic music. So it was just something like uh, he wasn't singing. That was the only thing that was going on, and and the records were long. So that was the biggest transition, and uh, I would say as the B-boying came into it, that's when I got into it a little bit more. Uh, because that's when you got introduced to the great beats. And you know, when as far as dancing on the floor, where whether you're up rocking these beats and music drove you to, you know, want to get on the floor and or get on the mic. And for me, in the beginning, it wasn't so much getting on the mic. For me, it was like graffiti and b-boying and and, and learning and listening
0: to hip hop. Because, I mean, you grew up in New Jersey. So that's like, you know, right in the hub of where hip-hop comes from. So did you feel, could you feel as you were growing up, the development of hip-hop and kind of where it starts versus where it was kind of growing and and now where it's the peak? Can you feel like the changes go through?
1: Well, being from New Jersey, you know, everything was secondhand for us. So we didn't have... You know, because hip-hop was so small in the Bronx, we only we didn't even hear about this until we heard it on the radio. And I think I was maybe like 10 or 11. And um, my parents used to go to New York a lot. And they used to go to this club called the Paradise Garage. And this this club is world famous. Uh, but when they sometimes take us to New York, we would go to was- Washington Square Park. And that's where I seen all the B-boys at. So and they were playing music that, of course, we would not in in New Jersey. And we were still kids at the same time. I'm playing football, running around in the street. And when this came, it was something else to do. And because it, you know, being in Jersey, you immediately you're not uh, seeing this stuff unless you knew somebody that was going there, like my parents, but they exposed us to it. So, uh, as the more hip hop came, uh, and then finding out that Sugar Hill Gang was bred in New Jersey, that was crazy.
0: And so, because when you realized the Sugar Hill Gang, they were part of New Jersey, did that kind of really give you that, oh, this can be, this is a pathway now for, for people from New Jersey? Well,
1: well, for me, it was more or less this, uh, I was, I was just still searching for more of it, you know, because it wasn't too much video of b-boying and, 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 and hip hop as much as far as like parties. But when I turned 11, uh, I saw, I, I saw wild style. I saw the movie and that just blew my mind, you know, but it was older. It was older. It was older dudes doing hip hop. Uh, but then I saw a steady crew. And I saw they were at the age group that I was in when you look at them. And I was like, whoa, OK, you know, because I'm already an athlete. You know, I, I was flipping doing gymnastics. And when I got into b boy and I saw them and I saw, b, you know, and you see all these, you see them in Wild Style. <clears throat> um, I went to New York, went to the Bronx Zoo. And that was like all of this was all around the same time. so. I saw Wild Style, I went to the movie, I went to the Bronx Zoo, I saw so much of things I I heard of that had to do with hip-hop, but I didn't know it existed until I saw it. Man, I went to the Bronx at like 11, 12 years old, in the 80s, yo, that was the craziest scene I ever saw. I couldn't believe we were in New York, it looked like a war war zone, like shit you see on TV with buildings being blown up and shit. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, this is not New York. And then my, my father was like, yeah, this is the Bronx. I was like, what the hell? So, I knew what I was looking at. You know, I, I got off the train and I just stood there and looked at the train going by. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is what they were talking about, graffiti. So, I go outside of the train station. And that's when I saw the buildings. I'm looking at the streets. I see graffiti everywhere, but the streets were just twisted, bro. So, once I uh I got back home, just so happened, uh, Star Wars came on. Same night I went to the Bronx, and I come home, and and I, I see this, and I was like, oh my god! Now I'm on overload. So it's all this this one movie was different than Wild Style. It was like a documentary, so I got to really see like the behind the scenes and see who Cool Herc was, and you know. Even K Slade, the DJ, is in Wild Style. I mean, Star, Star Wars. I don't know if a lot of people know that, because K Slay is a graffiti writer. So I've watched him so many times, didn't even know that he was into Graph. But a lot of things in that movie is so factual. And so, like, it, it made you, it made me understand why I wanted to get into it. So like getting exposed to that made me dig a little bit deeper. And it made me start going to New York as a kid, as a teenager. And these are the things we had to do coming from New Jersey because there was nothing like that where I was from until we started picking up on it and started actually participating.
0: It's interesting because you talk about, you know, the four elements of hip-hop, like a lot more than... And it feels almost that these days that's kind of faded into the background of more history. You know, the DJing, the MC, the graffiti, and the breakdancing, or the b-boying. But... Right. Um, that is essentially the fundamental four elements that made up hip-hop from the beginning.
1: Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, okay, four elements, even if you want to say five, these these kids today are not thinking about that, you know? And that just shows you where we are today in hip-hop as uh, not just me being a participant, but and now being an observer and, you know, historian, in the sense too, you know, they don't, today's hip hop don't uh, acquire you to use the elements unless you know how to. And that's mostly from our, my age range uh, or group. Um, there's some dudes in this era today that tend that, that stick to that, Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole. You know, I, I can go underground and say Elzai, I could say Sky Zoo, Tore, I could say um, Clear Soul Forces, producer-wise, I could say Apollo Brown, even Pete Rock still making records today. Brand new everything. You know, Buster Rhymes' new album. You know, he used the elements. But these people that use these elements know where hip-hop come from and is inside of them. Where today, uh, today's MC didn't have to practice that you know, they just know to get up, go in the studio, record, put the record out. You know what I'm saying? They don't, they don't have to do or attain any of the skill level that, that we had to do, but that's what's wrong with hip-hop in the whole. Everybody's just doing their own thing, and there's no rules applied to it, no laws. All the laws are being broken. So when you got cats saying that, you know, is uh, not say throwback, but it's, it's kind of weird for young, young cats to understand what we mean when we say they don't use the tools from the past. And it's not saying that we saying, you know, y'all no good because y'all don't do it because it's stuff that we could do too today to change our situation. But it's, it's, it's crazy how the times have changed where, like you said, people don't even, you know, these were things you had to really do and know. Before you do an interview, before you do anything hip hop, it was it was laws, it was rules. It was things you knew you had to do. And today it doesn't apply. So it's a good and bad thing when in that, you know, because as we can see, the future MCs have a lot, they don't, I don't want to say they don't even know it. They know about it, but they just feel like, ah, you know, that's for the OG for the old head so but when they see but when they watch a lot of the versus battles and they listen to bust Rhymes' album they trying to figure out why everybody's so fascinated with it i said because he did something that reminded us of a time where people really cared about making music
0: and what do you think it is that in the the elements of the core founding parts of hip hop that helps create the music because there is obviously, you know, there is the the fundamental belief behind it versus just going out and recording. But in your interpretation, what made those elements help create the music?
1: Well, um, like all, all artists that in their beginning stages, all the records that you know to love from the nineties, we all were doing that, like growing up, knowing the process of making records, um, learning the process of making records by looking at other people. Nobody knew what they were going to make when they went in the studio. They had a feeling of what they were going to do, just like with me and Tame. When we first started making our album, we didn't have no set thing that we wanted to do. We just wanted to do everything that we ever wanted to do as kids growing up. When we finally got the opportunity to make a record, it wound up sounding like between a rock and a hard place. Because these were all the things that we said we wanted to do or stay on the mic, even if it wasn't enough room for all of the other things we wanted to do. Uh, you know, it, it, all artists from the 90s had the same process, whether you was in your basement blowing off dusty records, you know, sampling the records with all uh, kind of other records that blend in, that don't blend in, and you're making it work. So you understood what you were trying to do, you know, as far as like, trying to make people want to buy the record, you know, you had to be, you felt like you had to be super duper nice, like with with everything, whether if it was a ramen, because like, okay, you got the producer, you got the DJ, you got the MC, everybody had a job. And in that job, you had to be dope. Because these were the ingredients that we all knew to do in making the record, it, you know, where everybody's position, you know, everybody played a part. So I don't DJ, DJ, chaos, you're going to make the scratches happen. That's your job. Buckwild. any producer that we work with, we had to be in chemistry with them, they had to understand what we were capable of. So going in the studio, making these songs, you knew what you had to do in order to make a good record. And it was a a certain standard that you had to go by. It couldn't be whack. You know, you can't be biting off nobody else. You got to have your own sound, be original. All of these things are uh, the things that we knew that we had to do that, you know, came from elements, you know, because even though the physical part of being a b-boy is not in the music part, but it's inside of you to move and maneuver the same way you know when you're writing rhymes just the same as when you painting a wall or or you on the floor doing certain moves
0: because it feels like you know when you talk about that collaborative process of I have my job you have your job that these days you don't have that as much because when I look back at you know albums in the 90s You have a lot of albums where the producer stays the same, where the DJ stays the same, where they kind of, Mm -hmm. you come together, you agree that you're going to work together and you work together for a full album. Whereas you can see now that one album, I'll get this producer, I'll get that producer, this person will make a beat. And there's not as much coherence in terms of album structure. You are right about that. What do you think that caused that? Is it more that, technology made it easier because it allowed a lot of people to start working together? Or is it more just, you know, the, the fact that it's just a change in times.
1: I think there's a lot that got to do with it. Um, opportunity is one, you know, cause when you, you look at a uh, gangstar, even though they was the group Primo was so dope that he had to expand because everybody wanted that sound too. Whether if it was a remix or whether he produced for another artist other than Guru. But the one thing about that, though, that, that whoever that artist was, wasn't Guru. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's what was the difference in Primo that made him feel like, let me branch out a little bit. And the same with Pete Rock. When he was, Pete Rock is C.O. Smooth. People wanted that sound. Pete Rock is a producer. Primo's a producer. Lord Professor a producer. So these dudes as producers go off and when they get the opportunity, they work with people that they're fans of too. So once you, uh, once the time got a little bit different and the producer became to be a little bit more independent, that's when you started hearing more of say like, uh, J Ruder damager. You know what I'm saying? He had a, he had the, the ingredients of Gangstar, but manipulated it in a whole different way. So where like today, you know, because all of these producers are still working, but their range is a whole lot different. You start to meet other producers who are influenced by them, and in the future, so when you talk about producers that are influenced by these these people, they wind up making, if not similar tracks, or better. And that's and when artists and MCs notice that, they flock they flock to these producers. So whereas, like you know. Now the sound is being shared by everyone. And the producer who's making the beats feels as is, is, is now becomes versatile. Because the more records you make, the more people you influence, the more producers come out. Because they feel as though, just like MCs, when you listen to stuff and you, you get an ear for it, you either start saying, I could do that or I could do better. But because you know the laws, you know you have to do better because you can't be like that. You can't do the same thing. But I think influence is really a part of most of that because even for myself, um, with me and Tame rather, both records we put out, we had like one producer, say like T rex he did the majority of between the rock and our place because he was the one that found our, our sound and within ourselves and he gave us beats that you know we didn't even know we was gonna have. But then when you look at the rest of the album, Buckwild and Redman. Redman was just starting out as the producer, but Rockwaller was in the studio with him. But that just made it more for Rockwaller because people found out that he can make beats, and now he's still making beats today. So you, as an artist, you know, you start to you start to branch out yourself to say like, okay, it's not a thing of saying you don't want to work with the producer that you may work with all the time. But then you might want to add to it. So, like myself, I work with like probably four or five different producers. But with that work, I'll have a sound from everybody that kind of would sound like one producer. Because when you know what you want, you can work with a bunch of different people and kind of make it sound like a, a, a similar producer working. You know, not say together, but you know, this this everyone has a sound.
0: Yeah, it's like cohesive. And
1: and when you when you Yes, and when you find people that's similar, you'll get all the sounds you need, even like when me and Sadat put out the XL album, we got 21 songs on that album, but there's so many different producers. So maybe between all those songs, maybe two or three producers had like two songs each or three songs, you know, but a lot of it was like one guy, two guy, one. So, which is cool, but at the same time, like you said, for cohesiveness, if you don't know what you're picking, you'll be just having a whole bunch of different songs and a bunch of different feelings
0: yeah and that's the challenge at the moment because obviously producers want to have flexibility as well much like artists like you as an artist would want to maybe feature here feature there and get your brand out as a producer it's not that easy because you actually got to make the beats and you got to make the tracks so it feels like unless you're into hip-hop the producer is not recognized like they used to be like you've obviously got the big names like your dr dre yeah yeah rizza your dj premier but after that it starts to get you know if you ask the majority of people name five producers out of the and exclude those three they probably wouldn't be able to do it so it feels like there are there are like real swings because the 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 producer or the dj in the beginning of hip-hop was everything and it's swung with
1: both, right? And sometimes the sometimes the producer was the DJ too. Yeah,
0: and, and and it's kind of swung towards the MC and the lyricism of the MC. How do you view that swing? Because it, it kind of feels like there is this unspoken rule at the moment where like the beat maker or the producer is not as recognized as the actual MC. Well, um,
1: it is a lot different now. I mean, I could name about a good few, a good amount of uh, producers today that are kind of similar to the ones that we would know back in the day, like Apollo Brown, uh, Illmind, Flying Lotus, uh, Damu the Fudge Monk, um, my man Jay Rawls, um, Sean J. Period. You know, it's not a lot of new producers that produce the way like how these artists that we knew from the '90s produced. Is a totally different thing now today with the computers, all these all these different gear and and, and stuff people work on, you know. But I w- I would hope to think that with a lot of the even newer producers I just named, that a lot of there's a lot of guys out there that understand the formula, and it, they, if they understand, like say a guy like Diamond D, you know, Diamond is a producer and an MC. But he's a producer first. And you hear that in his track, you know. And I, w- I would think that today, there's not enough uh, of the sound that we do that gets put in the forefront, so to say, um, where it, it will get that treatment of, say, of a stardom, say, like pre, uh, Pete Rock and Primo. And, you know, but it, this with this climate, that we live in, everything attention span-wise is fast. Mm. So you really, as a producer, have to captivate the people's ear in, in the sense where uh, you have to work with uh, certain artists you have to work with, you know, to bring that out. So a lot of times, producers today wind up doing joint projects like Apollo Brown, damn near, did a project with every dude, everybody except me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he got Razzcast, uh, Planet Asia, um, Sky Zoo. I'm like, you know, you name it. So, you know, when he's doing that, though, he's making a name for himself in the same way of how we were just what we're talking about. So he's, it becomes a household name because he's not talking. He's just making beats, but he's making beats for our favorite MCs, OC. You know what I'm saying? You can look at Ray West. Ray West is like a jazz producer. He did not did two. this His second project he's doing with AG, and he did one with OC. But these are the things we need. For these guys to do for us to know who they are. And the same like with Madlib, Lib, Knots, Knots Raw. You know, these dudes are on their Instagram pages making six beats a day. But unless we knew them, to know they were doing that, we won't know nothing. Yeah. Because a lot of these produce a lot of the producers, new ones, new ones, don't know to go reach out to a lot of like real, real, say like MCs that do songs.
0: Well, you talk about Apollo Brown. Apollo Brown's one of my favorites. The way he uses a soul sample, mm-hmm. to me, is yeah. so good. You can tell that he's studied the art form because he's got that, like, you know, primo touch. He uses a scratch. He knows how to cut it in the exact right way. And there is, like... Even, even neighbor's was like that, too. Name one the same way. It, it is just one of those things where you can see time. You can see how long someone... Has been actually going off and been like, I'll study the craft. Right, let me find this right, right. beat. Let me find this sound, and let me see how to chop it up. There is something that is unspoken at the moment about um, that that skill set. I mean, I'd love to hear uh, you do an album with Apollo Brown.
1: You and me both, bro.
0: <laughs> Trust me. <laughs>
1: So, you me both. so coming through My
0: man is nice so coming through in terms of you drop your first album that's 94 so you're with the artifacts um in terms of the crew how did that come out in terms of reception and how did that kick off your career moving forward
1: well uh when we did stretching barido show you know that just put us out there like uh just for as MC i a lot of people didn't want to hear our, our demo because they heard us rhymes, so they're like yeah demo okay cool whatever you know even when we went to the label, the label was like, man, look, we heard y'all on stretching Bob. We're good. We, we just got to get y'all some producers. So sitting with T-Ray and Buckwild and, and Redman, you know, we didn't know what we were going to come out with. Rhyme-wise, some of the songs we had already did, and we turned them into, from demos, we turned them into songs. But, you know, we was new, and the label knew that. But we were seasoned in a way of rhyming from where we were from and people we was affiliated with. So whether it was Redman, Brand Nubian, you know, uh, uh, like Shabazz, you know, Naughty, all of these people, we was around. So we knew what we wanted to do. We were just the last guys in Jersey to get a deal, kind of sort of, when you talk about Lords of the Underground and Redman and, uh, and Naughty. So when we came out, a lot of people thought we was from New York. A lot of people thought me and Tane were from Brooklyn.
0: Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, because of the way
1: I, me wearing all this polo gear and, you know, Tame had the dreads. You know, a lot of people really thought we was from New York. And then when the video came out and everybody saw we were from New Jersey, they saw New York Police Department, they saw New Jersey Transit Bus Company. I was like, oh, damn, these dudes from Jersey. I'm like, yeah, you know, and I think that, you know, because of me and Tame ramen the way we did and the way we looked, you know, Jersey is not so much considered a hip hop city when you're next to New York. But everybody that's from New Jersey don't sound alike either. We all sound different. All our music sounds different. Artifacts music sounds different from Lord of the Underground. Lord of the Underground music sounds different from Red Man. Red Man sounds different than Naughty. But we all, but we all friends. We all affiliated. And once we did come out, everybody was like, I would say the reception was so good because. People knew how hard we worked to get where we were. Where we got, um, people knew that we would one day probably make it. But I think the way we came out, talking about graffiti and making one side of the tracks a, a single that probably wasn't supposed to be a single, um, everybody heard it and it just made sense for it to be the single because that's what we was doing anyway. And um, I was I was grateful. I'm still grateful, you know from. One album we put out, we were able to eat off hip-hop for over 20-plus years. And we're about to put a whole new album out next year with Buck Wild. The name of the album is called No Expiration Date. Whole album produced by Buck Wild D-I-T-C. And it's almost like a homecoming for us, you know, working with Buck on the first album Come On With It Get Down. When you hear this record, it, it takes you back to that time frame. But it sonically sounds bigger. So we kind of knew what we wanted to do with that. But we did not know what we wanted to do on the first album. Second album, we that's them. We knew what we wanted to do with that record, but we just didn't know Sean J. Period would be the one to bring all of that
0: shit out of it. Because it's interesting to me because you dropped that first album in almost what is considered the golden age of hip hop. The between like yes, ninety three yes to like ninety eight is like where you have all mm-hmm. these it, albums, yep. these classic albums that come out that last the test of time, like you look back and you look at Wu-Tang, you mm-hmm. look at Big L, Big Pan, you look at all the Biggie, mm-hmm. Tupac, you look at all these MCs that right. came out. How did kind of being, because you're in that world in the time that I think everybody almost, if you love hip hop, you would love to be in that time. That's the time where, you know, everything's right, right. fresh, every album that comes out blows your mind how did you mm-hmm. find being in like the golden era of hip hop?
1: Man, I, I loved it, but it was hard because the first week we put our album out, you got to think about it like this: like the same day we put our record out, Red and Method put out they, Biggie put um Keith Murray, Eric Sermon. We was like, damn, we ain't gonna sell no records. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing we thought. We was like, we're not gonna sell no, we're not gonna sell no records in between all these dudes. So, uh, but we, we, me and Tame was the little machine that could on Atlantic Records because the, our fan base was so deep. It was so big because of what we stood for. And the label knew that. So we, we just knew, let's go out. Like, if we went to California first to go do the promo tour. That was the best thing we could have did because, you know, we live in the East Coast. Why would we do that? So we went to Cali. And man, we went out there and we were busting our ass. We was working hard. Every radio station, every rap dude we could meet, we was meeting everybody. And we was just like, oh, shit, this totally different than what I thought it was going to be. So you find that no matter where we were going, people were really like this little group from New Jersey. With, and people was liking us. So that was the scary part because you make you make this record, you don't know what's going how it's going to be. You don't know the outcome. You don't know if people are gonna, you know, like the record, but it showed and like the fans and, and this the this the way people was acting toward us, you know, and going out of town made it even better because we saw we started seeing that graffiti was big still everywhere. But because me and Tame looked the way we did and the gear and everything like it it, it just it just worked. And it's still working. So the answer that I'm giving you. Is an answer I can give even for today, because the same thing that we did back then, we're still doing now. And I never in my life would think that still after 25 plus years that I would me and Tane would have made that record and my life would change. And it and it changed and it changed again and it changed again. With hip hop, you're constantly working, you're trying to stay new, so that keeps your life in kind of like that order as well. So you know, I'm just fortunate that you know me and Sam was able to make some music that actually stood the test of time for us to still make records today. So you know, that's the one thing I never thought was gonna happen. And 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 then to be peers with all the to be yeah to be and to be peers with all of these artists that you no know, no people don't want to say it's a competition, but we are when we're putting out these records like the way we do you're not in competition with the other artists, but you are. You're in competition to turn people onto you to, like, say if they had an album they bought yesterday, now it's time for your album to come out. You got to be so good to make them not even want to play that other album again, they just want to play yours. So, and, and when we all doing this, when we in the studio, everybody, when we're all in the studio, we like souped up because you say like, yo, when they hear this, this is gonna be crazy. Like you're talking about even the other artists too. Because you want them to know, like, yeah, we all make music, but you also you also want to know that not just the fans, but your peers like your music as well. So we all we all performing for each other in some kind of competition as well, but and a friendly competition.
0: It's I mean, it's very different back in the in the nineties because you have to buy a record. You right. can't just go to Spotify. You can't just go to Apple Music. You have to go to a store. You have to decide and make the decision as a user that, mm-hmm. hey, I want to buy this record and actually properly compete. Whereas right now, like if you drop an album today, I know I can listen to your album. I can listen to Kendrick. I can listen to everybody that I want. Right, right, right. Literally just searching. So it's a it's a different form of it. And I've always been interested in sales, and this is where it comes like to me it's interesting because you actually have to have that commercial appeal that that appeal someone will have to pick it up and actually go home and play it so Mm -hmm. did you when you were recording did you guys did you think that all right we need to drop a single we need to start you know marketing this marketing that or was it just like let's drop the album and let's start promoting afterwards and start doing tours
1: Nah, we uh, we did, we definitely planned it out. Uh, every every release, really, you plan that out. Um, we we, you know, like like I said, like I said from even the promotional tour, it was like, where well, y'all want to go first? You know, we was like, well, we from the East Coast, we want to go there. We want to go to the West Coast, so we had to really like map out and plan pretty much everything. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. When- once we give the record to the label, you know, and the only thing, we were just happy. We just knew that we was going to get a release date. It was going to come out, but we had to do so much before that. Like, I remember going to the label and we was up there till like four in the morning just doing drops like for all these different radio shows and DJs. So we started like like one in the afternoon and they had a a sheet, like all these sheets of of my like countless radios. I mean, because, but these people were calling into the label wanting us to do these drops, all these DJs, but then they had just random stuff too. So we had to really prepare, like, before we even put any record out. Uh, you know, we had to know that um, of a process where uh, they're tell, they telling us, we're going to put y'all on a promo tour, and you're going to go to Chicago, you're going to do every surrounding areas, all the stores, then, you know, so that's when they started showing us, like, you know, when the record did come out. Like, remember when y'all were doing all that, running around and going here and going there? Once the record came out and the video came out, and you had, like you said, you had to really get your ass up and go to a store. You had to really go to a store and walk, find, even if your favorite record store, whatever the case may be, your ass had to go physically go there. Where it wasn't just sitting on your ass, that the luxury of your home is clicking away. I'm, I'm buying like 10 albums today. <laughs> Where you had to go, you had to go to the store and hope. Like, and this is what I mean. As a fan, all, we had to be in the record store and tell the dude behind the counter, such and such album is coming out soon. Like, can you order that? Because I want to get it. So, you, and, and if the record store person didn't know about that album coming out, you had to go somewhere else to go find it. But Majority of the time, you had your local spot where, like we had, we had a record store called Moving Records. Uh, Abby, Abby owned this store, and Abby knew everything. But also, she knew the artists. So as a kid, 14, 15 years old, I see Master Ace coming into the record store. I see Red Alert coming into the record store. I see, But if you didn't have these stores growing up, you didn't see shit. So these people don't even know the the thing about going to an in-store. Like, we still do in-stores. Artists don't do in-stores no more. like, you know, you have to really go, and that's what they get the term, go kiss the babies. So you got to do all of these th- different things to attract people to you. And today, these, ki- these cats don't even, can't even, like, I remember being in Chicago and not knowing that people were going to show up at the in-store. And they show up. And then they take pictures with us. Some people we smoke with, some people we drink with, but that next week you go home and the label will show you, look, what y'all did last week, remember when you was in Chicago? When y'all went to do that show in that in-store, they turned it to sales. So these these old way of doing things still can be done today. You know, but I would, it's just that, uh, like I said, it's a whole different time now today and some people don't, with the internet, you don't have to go outside to do anything. But then, but that's the thing that we tell them that they miss when you talk about, when they ask us stories about how it used to be. And this was the genuine thing about knowing that it's going to be some dude that's going to come up to you and say, yo, I drove like two hours to see y'all. Or, or I, I waited for like a month for them to invite y'all here so I come here and they got every record in their hand they want you to sign the autograph, everything, and take the picture. Yo, know, that's what, the, this is what it's about. And today, it's not like that, you know. And take take advantage of the fans. You know, the fans care more today, and they spend more money today than they, any fans did ever back then. Because now the artist got the whole bundle pack. So these people are really jumping out the window, like, I'm getting the bundle pack, $200 what they're getting into into the t-shirt hoodie uh hat cd vinyl you know cassette so you know but guess what you ain't had to go nowhere to get it yeah
0: (laughs) that you said i mean when you speak about it it's like i mean i'm conflicted because i'm like as as a fan of hip-hop i'm like oh i really wish i was in that era but it's so much harder to go see your artist so much harder to do all that stuff and i'm And then I'm like, now it's so much easier, but then now you don't have that same care in the sense Mm that an artist can drop and promotion is online. There's no, there's not that same, you know, going to a store. And as a fan as well, you, you don't have to go into a store and pray that they've got, you know, the CD that you want, they pray that they've got the album that you want. Like, like imagine going to a store and then you're like amped up, you're ready for the drop and someone else got it, and there's no more. you got to go to another store. That doesn't happen anymore.
1: <laughs> nah, because it's like, you know, now the stores are online where, you know, sometimes you have one site that'll have everything, but then you go to another, you know, only sell say Vinyl. So it's a lot different, uh, hip-hop, uh, what is this? Um, undergroundhiphop.com, a lot of these stores are gone. beasts is still here. You know, and that's pretty much, it's not a lot of vehicles for that market. But Fat Beats is still alive, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. That's like, you know, from day one they, they took care of us and they still taking care of a lot of people and helping a lot of people who still make money. So, you know, it's a lot different, you know, with this online store thing, but for a guy like myself, an artist like myself, you are blessed. To be online right now, if you have a career and you're from my era. Because these kids spend a lot of money online, man. And if you're making records today, you win it. Because they're going to buy it. And if it sounds good, they're going to support you. That's first. You know, because and, and if they see you doing shows and they see you still capable of performing to a, a, on a higher level, on a high level, they will support you.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's the what I'm really happy about is the growth of hip hop. I've said before on this podcast when I was at school, I was like, you know, in Australia hip hop wasn't as big as it is now. And I remember being at school and being the the like hip hop kid, the kid that loved it, and that everybody would listen to my music and go, "What is this shit? What would you listen to?" <laughs> yeah, they're like, "What is this? Turn it off." I literally remember we went to a party. They're like, what do you want to listen to? And I'm like, you know what I want to listen to. <laughs> but I also know that you know, you're not yeah, going like to like it. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I- I'm lucky because I found friends that love hip hop as well. But it-, it feels like now as a fan, I can see the growth in the industry because it's mm-hmm. exposing to all over the world. And I mean, you did an album with a Polish hip hop group. and well, Yes. So like when I look at it, we're... Literally, hip hop is going global, and the hip hop is, you know, artists are selling out internationally. Artists Mm -hmm. are selling out underground. They're selling in regions that when you begin, you don't even think about. But how do you view the the explosion of hip hop as it is right now?
1: Well, I'm uh, more of a, I travel to Europe a lot. I've been, I even tried to get to Australia a couple of times. Being in Japan, I tried to get over there to go to do a show a few times and it didn't work out. So I'm trying my hardest to get out there. But well, place uh, man
0: would love to have you.
1: Oh, trust me, I'm work- I'm I'm definitely working on it. Um I like like now just to mention what you said about the returners. I had no idea that I'd be working with some Polish dudes when I w- when you know, when on my solo adventures, you know, you see, I met them through the snow Goons, and I was just supposed to do a drop for them, then I did another drop and then they asked me to do a verse for one of their friends um, on a song, so I did that. They liked it. They was like, "Yo, you want to do an EP?" I was like, "Uh, yeah, okay." The, you know the label hit me up, and I went out there. I signed the contract out there. When I first started going out there, these dudes was like 17 and like 18, 19 years old, and I watched them grow. Even though I, I've been, I was, I haven't been there in a while. I watched. I'm going to hip hop camp in uh, in Czech Republic. And I see them at different functions, and they see me, and I'm I was happy and proud about that record because I know there wasn't a lot of black dudes working with a lot of Polish artists or anything of the sort. So when I did that, uh, it wasn't a lot of people doing a lot of globalizational records, if you so to say. You know, like so, I was already working with Snow Goons. They're from Germany. I work with a lot of people from uh, UK, producers, um, labels and and, and and such and the sort. But it's just that I, I was able to, I mean, like, I made my best records with European artists or, say, labels. You know, from Japan to Canada to, I mean, you name it. You know, I work with everybody, and I think that's what helped me. Uh, through my years of being a solo artist, not being in artifacts. You know, it, it put me in, a, in a, 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 um, a, fr- a, a work frame where people saw that I was into doing other kind of music, not just with American artists and producers. And that made, that just opened the floodgates for me where I was able to work with numerous producers and say like my friend uh, Chilo in Belgium. Where I did an album with him, and I work with uh, my man DJ Typhoon in in Denmark. You know, these people do music like me, no different than when I say branching out, working with different producers. These are the things that made my sound go further. You know, and you never know what these what these records gonna sound like until you get into them and you start doing them. So. For me, I I, I always invite. Uh, I don't care where you from. If it's hot, we make it a record, you know. And that's that's how it's not that. But a lot of people, uh, they most of the time think they can't work with me because me being an artist, who I am. But I was like, it's not that hard, bro. All you gotta do is have that heat.
0: Yeah, and all you gotta do is ask. Sometimes that's the hardest part. That you just gotta yeah, ask. Yeah. It. <laughs> it has a good situation. What do, think, what do you think hip-hop has, like, why do you think hip-hop appeals to countries that don't speak English? Like, you know, when you mention countries like Japan, you Poland, they're all countries mm-hmm. that English is not their native language. Like, when I listen to right. hip-hop, I can understand multi-syllable rhymes, I can understand rhyme schemes, I can understand structuring of bars. But no. when you don't, like when you don't speak that language and you don't listen to that language all the time, they're all nuances that you probably don't pick up. So what do you think it is that appeals to European countries, especially like underground music when it comes to like real hip hop sounding?
1: Well, I would think that that's the attraction right there. You just said it. It sounds like anything that sounds close to anything real where it sounds like how it used to be. It attracts a lot of people. i in Japan. They are still like not say in the nineties, but the way they dress, the gear, you know, is almost like I was like, Whoa, like what happened? I went back in time where they asking me, like, yo, why are people in America not like how we used to be? Why they wear tight pants? Why the hip hop sound like the way it do? I'm like, yo, I don't know. I asked the same thing myself. I try to figure it out. But, you know, and they, they feel like it's bad, like it's really bad, because like you said, the New York used to be the beacon, the hip-hop beacon, the light bright, shining bright, you could, from miles away, like, there the mecca of fucking hip-hop New York. And, you know, people confused now, because everybody from New York or from the East Coast sound like some they from somewhere else. So, I think, but that's the game. That's the part of this game, that messes everything up because people feel like they have to do either the same thing the next man doing or feel like they got to do something to make money. You can do all of these things. You just have to step the music game up to attract more people to, to what you're trying to do. And it's not like that today, you know, it's, it's, it's like they looking at us. I mean, this is everywhere because when you go to hip hop camp, is every nationality, every country, b- is being represented? So you see what everybody doing, and it's all hip hop, like underground hip hop. Sometimes it might be a band or whatever, but the 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 beginning traits are there, and they and and they also add in dudes like me, A.G. Etog, Hieroglyphics. Uh, I was at one thing where all these people I named was at this show, Bahamadia, you know, and was performing better than the younger dudes, you know? And it's just that they know what we're coming with. And they hear stories. And not knowing, you know, if you're going to ever see these people live, this is why people come. And this is what attracts them. Because when people come to New York, people really think that when they get out of the airport and get to Manhattan, they think it's going to be rappers walking around like it's wildlife on <laughs> National Geographic. <laughs> <laughs> but because they know New York is where hip hop come from, you, if you go to certain, you go to certain parties, you go to certain parties, you will see these people. But you got to know the people that's giving the part. So, and but but when we come there, it's the same, you know. And that's why I be a crowd of people because if they're here for two months, artifacts is coming. They like, oh shit, oh what what? And it's, don't let them not ever have. a and they all say to say, yo, I, I never thought I would see y'all live. And then they did this want they, 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 they want to touch you, they want to take a picture with you. Yo, you smoking? Like yeah, yeah. Like make it happen, make it happen. So these are things that these people dream about, man. It's like, and as as an artist, you can't be an asshole because you will steal that person's moment from them. Is is a saying? I don't know if you have this out there where you where y'all out out there, but it's a saying that they say you don't want to meet your idols. Yeah, because they and will. Yeah, they will either turn you off or disappoint you. I know this. I meet. I've met my idols, and I <laughs> it's happened to me too. Do you so, know what yeah. it is?
0: It's because we're humans, and what we as I when you have an idol, it's like you see them as like this godlike figure, where you're like they can do no wrong. I love everything that they do. I love everything that they touch. And then you speak to them when they're just like a normal person, or they're yeah, like you, I'm know, you, know, I'm you know I'm doing something. I'm
1: sure I get on my face. Hold on, yeah. hold on, right back. hold on. You stay right there. Hold on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you touch on a couple of interesting things. Um, like because I personally am a New York type of hip-hop, I like East Coast. West Coast has never clicked for me as well as East Coast has clicked for me, and I always get, you know. My my two friends that I do this podcast with Danny and Matt, they, they uh, love West Coast, but I'm more of an East Coast type of guy. But how did you perceive the the East versus West? Because you were essentially really in the thick right. of it. Yeah. So how did you see that that beef?
1: I, w- I will say this to you. I was at that source of wood when they went, when that shit went down. And man. Just to see Sugar up on that stage, big as hell, talking about, y'all yeah, ain't got no love for the West Coast, but pe- out here, yes, we do. But that energy in that building that day, I, me and Tame, and I remember clearly we were sitting in front of the group, the Legion. And, yo, know, it, it was a lot going on at that source of Like, that was just, like, a lot was happening. And when they said that, I looked at Tame. And I was like, it's time to go. I think we should leave. This, this don't look right right now. And when Snoop, Snoop, and we, and when, and we even when Outcast got booed because they won an award. I was like, yo, why are they booing Outcast? I like, I like Outkast. Why are they booing them? Like, I, it was just New York was on fire that day because of the shit that was going. with which it was just like, yo, we gotta go. And just. I was, we was on the radio station and K on Sway and, and Tech. When Biggie did that last interview with them, we was there at oh, the wow. station. Yes, like they told us to hurry up to do our interview because Diddy and, and uh, Biggie was downstairs. No, I kid you not. We got out the elevator right? when they told us we was done. We got out the elevator and as soon as the elevator door opened up, Biggie standing right there. We was like, oh, shit, oh, shit. He heard us on the radio listening in the car. So when he opened, when the door opened up, he was like, Oh, all uh, the fans, uh, yeah, yeah, yo, y'all was dope, man. I like y'all. I like y'all. We was like, Oh, shit, Biggie. <laughs> 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 you know what I'm saying? We was like, Oh, shit, bro. I would have fried some of you. No, we weren't, bro. We were still in the elevator. And then <laughs> he was like, Yo, we got to go upstairs. Yeah, get out. We was like, Oh, 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 my bad, my bad. So we was just stuck that he said that. Man, I went, we went to the hotel and that interview was so raw. I called Tammy as well. Like, yo, you listening to him? He's like, yeah. Like, Mind you, they told us not to curse. When we was up there. Biggie, that whole interview, he was cursing. He was rhyming. I was like, oh, and yo. And then a week later, he was gone. I didn't think after I see him at the radio station that he would be gone a week later, or, or even a good amount. Yeah, it was like a week or so later. Yeah, a week and so, maybe a week and a half. So I, I hated that. I hate that these dudes is gone because of other dudes. And because of a beef that had nothing to do with either one of them. But it's always the people that they hang around is going to fuel the shit up even more. So if anything, we all lost, we all lost when it came to that. And I think we all learned a lesson. But these dudes, it's totally different today with all these rappers getting killed compared to them two dudes. Because these were important dudes in the the game and at a time where they were at their high. You know, uh, part of their career, and you know it's sad. It's sad that a lot of the people like uh, even when I think about Big L, you know. But when I look at you know how many people died because of that West Coast East Coast West situation, you got a lot of people got locked up because of that, you know. And we lost two artists that we would never know how they would be today because of that.
0: Yeah, it's it's strange because the East First West made hip-hop so much bigger than it is right now. Like, it just became everything. Everyone was talking about it. Everybody was listening. Everybody was waiting. Like, Biggie drops an album. All right, what's Tupac going to do? Biggie drops yeah, a track. Yeah. What's Tupac going to do? And it was the back and forth, and everybody was so interested in it. But yeah. it cost them, obviously, their careers. Tupac had a longer career than Biggie cost did. It cost
1: their lives. It cost these yeah. lives with Biggie felt like, he was scared to death to go outside. He, he remember that interview. He he did an interview on Rap City on BET, and he said it like, "I'm scared to go outside because I don't know who gonna run up on me." And I was just like, "Damn, bro, you know what? It's bad that we gotta it gotta be like that when we only doing music. These dudes died doing something they love, and it and only inspiring it, 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 so many others. Yes, yes, and it's and when you look at it, at the end of the day, it's music. They didn't die in a war. They didn't die because of a fight or beef or anything. It was because of other people and jealousy and animosity and envy and stupid. You know what I'm saying? And and it's still happening. That's what's more stupid about it. So, you know, the only thing I can say, man, I wish that uh, that time period didn't happen at all. Like, I wish we could erase that. And just start over.
0: Yeah, it, it's strange to me because, like, you know, I look back and go, "Big L dropped one album," and I wonder what his career would have been like. He he just had yeah. such impeccable technique. Like, what well, it was like a, a tiny album, eight tracks. Just it, to me, it's still mm-hmm. one of the my favorite albums. It just shows technique in terms of the MC that yeah. does. You don't see a lot of anymore. It's obviously the change of hip hop. And, and hip-hop is almost like that young person's game where it, like, continues to evolve. But going back and listening to 90s albums, I always go back and go, I wonder what could have been. Even the same as Big Pun.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, like, it's, it's a total different thing, man. You know, Big L, like, pun. You know, I, even the way L got taken out, it was just, like I said, other people, minding other people's business. And they knew how to do what they wanted to do. And that just... Once he they took him and took everybody, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you said, you would never know what his career would have been like if he was still here today, you know, on his own terms, no different than Biggie, Biggie and Pop. But, um, it's still a lot of people out here that's that's you know still working, you know, but it, and then a lot of people that we wish were still working, but dudes like them two guys, man, they was ahead of their time, like L. That was way ahead of his time, you know, and had a lot of people scared. And I wish that we couldn't see him up because I, I think Jay Z would have blew him up, even with him being still being an artist.
0: Yeah, and I think you're, I think you're right when it comes to that. And we could have seen some incredible, you know, collaborations from these artists. You know, I just think about, you know, the 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 ability of of them to to continue to inspire hip hop. But if I if I jump back to you because we've talked about the, the history of hip-hop but you you said that you've got an album coming out um how soon is that looking at dropping
1: um i would i would say 2021 maybe like march April stay tuned so, yeah definitely definitely we was gonna try to put it out this year but um damn corona pushed it back so which is good because uh we it made us get you know other other um songs done. Uh, there's only like one uh special guest, two or three special guests on the record. is not too many features, you know. I would hope to think that just me, Tame, and, and Buck wild That's those are the features right there. I tried, I tried to get some fantastical shit to happen, but I couldn't get it.
0: Uh, it's hard. It's hard with with everything that's happening right now. But I always finish off all of my interviews with the same question, and it helps me because and my listeners because we get to build a catalog of albums. But If you had to recommend one album that everybody listens to other than your own, what would it be?
1: Man, okay. Hmm. If I had to say a newer record from last year, I'll say P-Rock and Sky Zoo, Retropolitan. And if I had to say a record from the past, um, damn, that's hard. But, like, hmm... Like it'll have to be like maybe like it's between Gangstar, Charcoal Quest, and EPMD. I don't know about the EPMD one.
0: That's the alright. I'll take I'll I'll take (laughs) I'll take Daily Operation Gangstar. There you go, Daily Operation Gangstar. If you haven't listened to it, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but go (laughs) listen to it (laughs) because it is. We I I went for a drive yesterday with Danny, who's on this podcast, and we were talking about. Gangstar and Guru's voice at the start sounds monotone, but it works so perfectly with the beats that it is just unparalleled.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's like more or less that is a masterpiece of a record. I could have said back in the soul, brother, P Rock and Seal smooth too. But that the song, the voice, even though it's not on the first album, when I heard that song on Hard to Earn, it made sense why we like Guru. Because when you think about it, Guru is, you know, not everybody's favorite rapper, but you became the, he became to be. Because you didn't know what he was going to sound like. You know, like, when we first heard him, we was like, you know, the accent was different. We're like, where this dude from? Then to find out he from Boston and to find out G- Primo was from, ahead, which came, was from damn Dallas or Houston, we was like, damn, like, well, how is this? And then they didn't live in Brooklyn. Like, how did this work? So, uh, you know, and, and 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 but they made it work. And this dude's voice was like an instrument, and within all of the instrument, the beats that Primo was making.
0: Yeah, and it literally was, and that is something that people forget. the The voice is an instrument, and sometimes yes. it it's the perfect combination of the beat and the voice that works, and that is one of those perfect combinations. But I um, just want to big up obviously Elder Sensei. check out his music you can check him out on Instagram um, check him out on YouTube he's been working since 1994 that's when his first album came out so if you want to go back to an OG of hip-hop and you heard us talk about literally the golden age of hip-hop and how he ran into Biggie um, mm-hmm. and and you know it's it's like a dream come true when i hear stories like that it makes me like imagine if i was in those shoes but um yeah it was a real pleasure for me to speak to you as i said i always love speaking to people who've been in the industry for a long time it lets me nerd out a little bit uh, on (laughs) hip-hop but um as soon as that album drops out you know we can come back on we can keep talking there's so much that we that we had but is there anything else you wanted to plug
1: yeah man um you know Y'all just get ready for this Artifacts record. It's been 25 years since we did the first one. And this year was the 26-year anniversary. We got 10 songs on this album, all produced by Buckwild, featuring Razcast and featuring Afro. Those are the only two people that's on the record. We got a gang of scratching on there. It's going to be everything you would think that it would be. So it's coming out on Smoke. Uh, 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 smoke oh my god smoke oh my god smoke on on record smoke on record and and it's coming soon April May March April May around that time so stay tuned everybody Artifacts is coming love y'all
0: they're coming back they're coming back so stay tuned and we need something in 2021 to keep us happy that'll more than than keep us happy but I appreciate your time obviously you know busy man and, and as i said before you know real pleasure for me to speak to and i hope that everything no, gets, wet, it, it all gets sorted out where you know with coronavirus and everything and i hope that you know with the election now that it's over it all kind yeah, yeah, of evens out a little bit normal <laughs> yeah and and everybody can get back to making music which we love so no i appreciate it man and and um hopefully we get to speak soon and i'd love for you to come down to australia as well
1: any anytime brother i'll keep you posted. if i know somebody that's out there I know a few, few promoters, but we're going to make it work.
0: Awesome. Sounds good, man. Have a good one. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. Please like and subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for all upcoming podcast news. Bye for now.